Welcome to Two Coffees and a Creative. I'm your host, Matt David. So what's this podcast all about, I hear you ask? These days, so many things begin with coffee. A new business venture, a lifelong partnership, even a new love. Each month, I seek out entrepreneurs, innovators, and idealists and find out the stories behind their achievements. They choose their favorite coffee spot, we order two coffees, then we delve into their life, successes, failures, pivotal moments, and some fun stuff for good measure. I hope you enjoy learning from these unique individuals as much as I did. Now put the kettle on or order that second coffee and enjoy this episode of Two Coffees and a Creative. The knife is the oldest tool in a chef's armory. Dating back millions of years, it shaped the evolution of humankind. Cooking is one of life's great joys, and knives are often our primary interaction between ourselves and our food. After discovering his passion for making knives, Aidan McKinnon gave up his career and founded Cutthroat Knives in Melbourne back in 2013. We sat down for two coffees at his local cafe, Eighth Nerve, in Coburg. Good start. <laughs> um, I'm here with, uh, with Aidan McKinnon from Cutthroat Knives Australia um, in Eighth Nerve Cafe in Coburg. How are you going, mate? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. So, first of all, um, tell us about Eighth Nerve Coburg. What's, what's, this, what, what's this cafe like here? Uh, when I first moved into, my, into the makerspace that I'm in, I... There was just nothing around here. And so when this place opened and served good coffee and good food, it just became the place to be. And so it's, it's great because I've always, I always really enjoy coffee. Yeah. Uh, and to find a place that does filter and Vietnamese coffee and, you know, and good long blacks and has beans to buy as well. Yeah. It's just been a godsend. Yeah. Uh, because I'm just non-functional without coffee. Yeah. Um. So tell me about your, um, your, I just want to know a little bit about your personal journey. Um, when did you first discover um, your creative spark? I've, I've always been creative uh, throughout my life. So I've always, art as a kid was always a big part of my life. And I've always played around with drawing and design. And, and even though I went down non-kind of creative pathways, I always maintain that side of me. I'd always kind of have a sketchbook or I'd be doing photography or I'd kind of be, be making something at one point or another. Um, and I always knew that no matter who I was with, at one point I was going to have to have this difficult conversation with a partner and go, oh, hey, I'm going to drop work and I'm going to pursue something creative where there's no money. Uh, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, which is easier kind of said and agreed upon than, than done in reality. Yes. You know, I've been doing this now for the last couple of years and it's being creative is incredibly rewarding, but it's also, you know, it's tough. And yes. It's stressful. And it's, it's not always the knife making side of things, it's the other side of things. Yeah. So your, your previous career was quite different to, to what you've chosen to take up with with cutthroat? Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd studied 
politics and I'd studied uh, kind of the liberal arts and, and I'd worked, yeah, I'd, I'd gotten an internship and I worked in, in Geneva for a while and then I moved to New York and I was, I was working over there and then my partner got a job in Malaysia and so we moved over there together. Uh, and so she was working for an NGO and I got a job with Monash University which has got a, a campus in Malaysia. So yeah, 100% different, but it's doing what I do now and, and doing that, you just, there's such a contrast between those two. Like one was this, this production of esoteric thoughts and often esoteric thoughts that nobody engages with. You know, you'd go, they would say, you know, write up a document about this. And you just knew that no one was ever going to read that document. Yeah. Um, and now, step away from that and make real objects that exist in the world is pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. Would you guys like any coffee? Yes, we would. Thank you. Uh, can I get a filter? Uh, yeah, I might go with one of those as well. Sure, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's nice to have a bit of a filter option. Yeah. It's, sure. I don't know, just... If I'm going to go for a normal coffee, I'll go for a long black, but I think a filter's yeah, a bit more mellow in terms of the flavor profiles that happen. Yeah. Um, it, there is something incredibly wanky about ordering a filter, though. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and something I don't... I, I get it that the coffee world wants to develop this thing that coffee should be seen as this fine wine or whatever. Yeah. But I still want it to be just something that I order. Yeah. And so I was, <laughs> when you go to certain coffees and like, ah, oh, you know, we've got filters or siphons and I like them both. So I'm going to get this and they'll go, ah, oh, and they'll bring over the tasting notes. And I'm like, I don't, I actually don't care. Like, I really, I love that flavor of coffee. Yeah. Coffee, I don't, it's like when I order a wine, I don't want them to tell me about the history of that wine. I just want to have that wine. Yeah. Um, yeah, if it's good or bad. Or yeah, it's, yeah, it's either going to be good or bad, yeah. and you giving me the tasting profile is not going to influence that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like it, but I hate it. Yeah. I hate the, the culture that started to build around that style of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, uh, tell us about, so Cutthroat Knives. So what was the inspiration behind um, wanting to do knives? I mean, that's a pretty random thing. To yeah, do, totally. To do. It's... I've, I've always been into food. Um, I nearly became a chef at, at different points. Um, and, I've, and I've worked in professional kitchens. And, I've, and, and at various points, I've cooked a lot to the, you know. I would always differentiate between what I did and, and what a chef does, but, uh, but borderline. And, and when I was living in New York, you start getting more into food and you start buying tools that enhance that cooking experience. So when I moved to New York, uh, I'd always had good knives, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna step it up again. And I found a handmade maker over there, uh, Cut Brooklyn, and, and I wanted to get one of his knives and I just kept on missing out. And so, but I was just aware of him. You know, I became aware of him through kind of the things that I was interested in. I was, you know, following design websites. Yeah. And when I did come back to Australia, my parents were like, ah, oh, you know, we ran into a guy who makes knives in Australia. And so I contacted this guy and I was like, oh, you know, can I come out and learn how to make a knife? And I went out to, I went out to Adam Parker who teaches out in Ballarat. And I was like, oh, can we make a chef's knife? And he's like, no, we're going to be making a hunting knife in this house. And so I made a hunting knife with, with Adam. Um, 
and while I have literally no interest in hunting, and and camping is never connected to me. Like my, you know, I always think like my ancestors were the nomads. I don't need to do that anymore. Um, I what he taught and what I appreciated from it was the process. And, and so even though you cannot, you might not be able to connect with the tool that you made, I connected with that process. Uh, and then within about six months, I'd done another course with Thala Valley Forge up in Canberra. And within a month of that, I started buying everything that I needed to start making my own knives. And I went back to Adam a couple of times and continued to learn, and, and, and he was really fantastic about that. But very quickly, I was like, this is what I want to do, and, and grew that business. Um, yeah. So what what was it about Adam? Do you still keep in touch with him now? Is, is there any sort of mentoring tips that you've really picked up? We do very different things. Um, Definitely, if I was going to start making bushcraft knives or hunting knives, I'd, I'd get back in contact with him. Yeah. Um, but because I've gone down a specialisation of chef's knives, who I have to be talking to is different. But I, you know, yeah. uh, I, I would still say I'm, I'm, I'm friends with with Adam. Um, yeah, you kind of. I think with any mentor or with anybody you learn from that person has to change. It's very weird that somebody's like, oh, this is my mentor of 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's generally, from what I've heard from other people as well, in terms of business mentors, you have business mentors for one to two years. Different, different stages. Of yeah, years. exactly. Yeah. So, um, so you got the equipment, and then you, um, then you found a space. Yeah, I, I moved into Space Tank Studios, uh, which at the time was really the only place I could find to do this. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd looked at a couple of different places and they're like, oh, we're a woodworking studio, you can't do metalwork here. Or, you know, I was even thinking about having to move that on my own, but I, I knew nothing about what I was doing and I, I knew that I really wanted to kind of learn from other people. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm, I moved in and I just... For the first kind of five, six months, I just stood in front of a grinder and stood in front of a forge and burnt stuff and broke stuff and hurt myself and made crappy knives until I made okay knives. And then those okay knives I sold to friends and family and I'm very sorry to my friends and family that I sold you crappy knives. Um, and then at one point, you have to take that step and I, I sold, I went to Rose Street Market and it's a, it's a scary and amazing thing to sell your first knife to someone who's not, who has no intrinsic investment in you as a person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To that random stranger. How did the sales pitch go? Was it like. Oh my god. Like, it's, it's evolved so much from there that it's hard to look back on. Yeah. As, as this thing of like, oh. I this is what I'm doing, but I... What was the initial reaction like? Um, I think people were like, wow. Yeah. Like, people are making... At the time, you know, knife making has grown a lot in Australia in terms of the time since I've launched and, and where we are now, and it's got a lot more growth to, to go. Yeah. Um, but when I launched... While there were other makers in Melbourne, it, it didn't. There weren't other full-time makers. There weren't that many other full-time makers in Melbourne. I only knew of one others who specialised in very certain stuff. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and so you were, you were literally people's first interactions with a handmade knife in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was pretty special. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm... These days, when people come across us at markets, they're like, oh, I've heard about you. Which was so different from when we launched with our, when people were like, yeah. oh, yeah, I've seen people make this stuff in Japan. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, well, there's people doing it in Australia. And they're like, oh. And I think for a lot of people, it was a novelty. Yeah. I guess knife making is quite sort of synonymous with um, with Japan, and um, I know I, I bought a uh, when I was in the fish market over there. I bought a nice little um, sort of sushi knife. But, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess people. So so what what sort of what was a pivotal moment in? Uh, don't tell me this is. Uh, we're still going. Okay. Um, what was the pivotal moment for, for you in um, when you when you sold so you sold your first knife and what 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 was what sort of changed for you did was this did you start getting some press or what was the kind of pivotal think, moment for you? I think the big moment I got a run up in design fires quite early, but that was I wasn't even ready for that. Yeah. And then the the big one was. I got a small feature in Delicious magazine, uh, and I was blown away by that. And then we got contacted, I got contacted by Delicious magazine, they're like, oh, we want you to come up to the Design Awards. Uh, I was like, oh, maybe I've won a Design Award. How, like, for their, sorry, their Produce Awards. And I was like, oh, maybe I've won one of their Produce Awards. And I was speaking to people, and everyone was like, no, you haven't. Like, don't. And, I'll, and, and so, I very quickly was like, look, I'm probably there just to kind of fluff out, to pad out their, their offering. And I got there, and I looked around the room, and I was like, none of these other makers in Australia that I'm aware of are here. And, and so I actually looked for Elana from, from Kona. I looked for the owner of Mud Ceramics. Uh, I looked for a couple of other knife makers and then some glass blowers and some woodworkers and since none of those people were there I started to have like a bit of a panic attack I was like oh, one I've been drinking this whole evening and two I might actually win and people have been giving speeches so far and I need to kind of mentally start making a speech and I was standing at the back of this room because I was so sure that nothing was going to happen and then I won that that was just a rule. Yeah. So they, they didn't tell you. So they, they, yeah, they told me nothing. <laughs> uh, and so kind of went up there and, you know, nervously gave an acceptance speech. And What was the award for? Uh, outstanding Design. Yeah. And so it was the first year that they've run. They've been doing the Produce Awards for 25 years at that point, but there was the first year that they started adding in. And a word for the satellite industry is the food industry. So that's for ceramicists and knife makers and glass blowers and so on. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was really special to have that. And that that was the first point at which I felt where I wasn't where you have imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know? Until then you're just like, oh god, I'm making knives and nobody's complaining, but they're probably just holding their complaints in. Yeah. You know? When in reality, people tell you straight away if they've got a complaint. Yeah. You know, if they spend a couple hundred dollars on something and it doesn't work, yeah. they're going to tell you the moment that that doesn't work. Tell us about that imposter. Funny you mentioned the imposter syndrome. I mean, a lot of creatives kind of feel feel that kind of 
Well, how does it, how's it affected you? I, yeah, I think it, I think everybody has it in, in whatever job or whatever career path that they do. Yeah. Either that or they're completely narcissistic. Um, and it's, it's because you see the best of everybody else's work and the worst of your own work. You're 100% aware of your own failures. Yeah. And so, I, because you're so aware of those things, yeah. you, you feel that you're undeserving yeah. of any success that you have. Yeah. Um, and, and it just, unfortunately, it just takes time to go away and, and, uh, you know, and a little bit of recognition for that to go away. Yeah. And either that's recognition through, through purchases by other people yeah. or through recognition from the, the community that you're part of. Yeah. Um, either way, it's, it's tough and I don't know the best ways of getting over it. Yeah. Um, as Cutthroat grows as well too, um, what are some challenges that you've had um, that you faced that you're, uh, that, to a growing business as well? That, yeah, I, I think... I think there's different challenges every year. Uh, the one that I've been kind of facing in the last year is, is in terms of that transition from sole authorship, so to, for, so from sole trader to a, a business of, of a couple of people, um, and, and how you've got to manage staff and responsibilities to staff, and, and um, you know you can you can get by not paying yourself as a sole trader, but you can't get by not paying your staff. Yeah, and so. Learning all the ins and outs of the tax around that, and the uh, and the super that I have to be on top of, but also my, my responsibilities to people. You know, I'm, I'm I was lax in terms of my safety when it was just me. Um, that meant like not completely lax. I'm not terrible, but but I recognise I've got a lot of responsibility to people in these situations yeah. uh, and so taking safety uh, a hell of a lot more seriously yeah. Yeah. With, with, with staff yeah. um, you know things that I didn't do before when it was just me were, you know I would never have a weekly toolbox meeting about hey let's have safety reminders yeah. why would you need that it's yeah. on your mind you're one person yeah. but having to do that with staff going hey you know this is really important and just kind of making some, some of those kind of transitions yeah. has been enlightening and you know where we are now and where I'll be in three years will be different challenges but those have been the ones of the last year yeah, yeah. and as you, as you grow um, um, what's your, your, your ethos with handmade um, how, how big do you think you can you can grow to before you know you start you start to, start to sacrifice your the handmade side of things yeah I think it's I think it's a challenge for any for any business that's built around handmade about how how to grow and how to connect with with a broader customer base. Um, I think I think there's scope for that, but it's a conversation. So for us, it's about commitment to sole authorship. That that all of our products, whether they're knives, chopping boards, chefs' rolls, they need to be made from, by one person from start to finish. Um, uh, and that's and that's how we stay committed to handmade, even as a growing business. Yeah. I don't like the idea of kind of compartmentalisation and going, oh, this guy does the heat treatment, and this guy grinds the blade, and this person packages it, and all of that kind of stuff. It should all be done by, you know, it still needs to be one person. Yeah. 
Um, that said, I've got this lofty goal of going, hey, we want to have a store in Melbourne and a store in Sydney and hopefully one day a store overseas. But the way I would see that is maybe if we have a store in France, we work with some local bladesmiths over there. So yes, we've got our some of ours made over here, but we've also got a, a series of knives that are only made in France yeah. by French makers, and the only place to buy them are in our French store. Yeah. You know? And then it makes it really special. It makes it, oh, have you been to the cutthroat store in Paris where the only place to buy X knife is there? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess you'd learn a lot through that too. That, that brings me to the other question too. You've, you've had some pretty wild collaborations with, um, like, from taxidermy to augmented reality. Um, tell us a little bit about about your spirit, the spirit of collaboration. I'm, yeah, I, I knew that this was always going to be a big part of what I wanted to do. Um, in the beginning, even though I wasn't offering what we're offering now, I, I always had the vision of going, cool, we want a core range of knives, which are really people's introduction to handmade, um, that takes away some of that mythos around that uh, and, and makes it a bit more accessible. We wanted limited editions because they're a great opportunity for us to work with other creatives, and we wanted our custom range to sit on top of that, which is where somebody wants something that's completely unique to them. So with our limited editions, a lot of the time it's because I'm inspired by other people. Uh, and I, I really dig what they do. Um, and so the work with the taxidermist was me coming across this, this taxidermist in Scotland who's a vegan taxidermist who uses the claims roadkill that people drop off to her. So she's not driving around trying to run over as many animals as she can. People are dropping off and giving to her. And she's using that. And I, I just found that really lovely. And so we're like, hey, let's do a modern, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I'm very sorry to all Scottish listeners. Uh, a skin do. Uh, and we would do the skin do and she would do the sporum. Um, and I, like, I kept one for myself and we sold the other, you know, the other one. Yeah. Um, which I just found really kind of special and amazing. Uh, we've done ones with, with rooftop hunting. Just because, again, I found that these guys were that, that start of that urban apiarist movement in Australia. Um, and I really loved their branding and I loved what they were kind of about. And so we, we went to them and like, oh, let's put bees in the handle. Which turned out to be so difficult. It turns out that bees and resin just do not mix well. Uh, and it took us six months. We originally were like, we're going to bring this out in January. And it came out in August. Because it took us six months of experimenting. You know, every month sitting down and, and just working out why the bees and the resin were just exploding and, and just turning out terribly. Yeah. Uh, and that took a really, really long time to kind of get right. Yeah. But when it did, it was just magical. But by the time you finish it, you're like, I never want to look at that knife again. Yeah. You know, you're like, I am done. That took so much work to get those done. Yeah. Um, so it's... Yeah, it's, a, it's about pushing creativity. Yeah. And we've got... I've got 20 or 30 knives that I would want to work with different people on. We're just about to open it up for the first time to other people. So until now, we've been reaching out to people. And we're just opening up for people to work with us. Um, 
and that's yeah and so we've had a couple where we've been paid to do it I mean yeah so we're opening up those kind of things as, as a little bit as marketing opportunities for other companies but also as, as opportunities just to kind of collaborate with another maker um, yeah, so we've got a whole bunch of those in our in our belt. We could only do limited editions if we wanted to, yeah. um, and would be busy with that. Yeah. But we need to keep them a little bit constrained. Yeah. That's exciting. I look forward to seeing it. Um, all right, let's let's move on a bit from from uh, from your personal journey to like a broader social yeah social issues. Um, social media. <laughs> it's it's can be the bane of our existence, but also can be uh, quite helpful as well. What, what's, have you, have you implemented it? And have, what, what have you found about social media? Um, I think it's, it's a love-hate relationship. You get, you get some amazing abilities to kind of connect with your customers. You also, it happens less on Instagram than on Facebook. On Facebook, it happens a lot more. Where I was chatting to Poe. Master Chef about this, and she was like, and she agreed that on Facebook it happens more, where somebody will just do like a nasty comment out of nowhere, and you don't really know what to do with it. Um, and it, it, it's like someone walking past your house as you're gardening, and like your garden's beautiful, but the roses are just disgusting. And like, well, I don't know what to do with that comment, and then they've walked off. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so I never know how to handle the nastiness. Yeah. Do you respond to stuff like that? Or what, yeah. We try and do it with a little bit of brevity. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, I thought, like, what I, the one that I really am inspired by, and I would love to be a little bit more kind of sassy, is Wendy's in America. They're, they're social media person. Yeah. The persons, I mean, with a company that size, it's definitely like 10 or 20 people. Yeah. But it's quite funny and, and it's, it's quite provocative in how they respond. I'm definitely not on that level. But you know, we've had people go, I love your names, but I hate your name. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do about that, but yeah. I'm not about to change the company's name. Yeah. And why is that something that you need to say to me? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, oh, if somebody has a brilliant way of responding to that, please tell me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, we'd, all, we'd all love to know that, I think. Um, money. Can, can it buy happiness, do you think? Yeah. Yes and no. Um, I, think, I think when you've got no money... 100% money money alleviates stress and, and what is it that, that happiness is tied to to daily stresses or daily struggles now if you've got no money you've got a lot of daily struggles you're wondering how to pay for different bills and that. but as soon as those immediate things are covered then what are the daily struggles maybe it's actually the work that you're doing you know if if you're working a job that you hate because it covers the bills that takes away that daily struggles but it's creating a whole bunch of other daily struggles because you hate your boss and you hate the nature of your work then all you've done is replace one set of daily struggles with another set of daily struggles um, I think I think you need enough money 
to be okay. And, and okay is going to be different for different people. But, but the idea that, that more money intrinsically makes you more happy is an unfair equation. Yeah. Um, I think I think living a living a life where you enjoy what you're doing and living a life that minimizes stressful daily struggles is, is what's gonna bring about happiness. Yeah. What's one change that would make this world a better place? Uh, now you're tapping into the political side of me. Um, <laughs> Bring it on. It's, Bring it on. I, I think I think there's this real issue at the moment that people are speaking two different languages in politics at the moment, and nobody's willing to listen to each other. That, and even the people who sit somewhere in the middle. I I would consider myself left wing on most things. I'm, you know, marry who you want to marry, tax religions, um, but also I kind of, as long as you kind of go through the, the the checks about this stuff. If you want to own a gun, I don't really care if you want to own a gun. I'm, you know, I I, I think. I think these things are hard to navigate, and people have locked themselves down into identity politics, and I don't think that's a healthy thing. Um, and I think if we can work towards a place where we understand and listen to each other a bit more, and not argue against the construct of the other person, you know, if, if I was to sit here and, and you're a Trump supporter, I might be arguing against you as a construct of what I see a Trump supporter being, yeah. rather than. Uh, rather than having a, a discussion, a genuine discussion around values shared or non-shared yeah. and how to manifest yeah. those in society in the best possible way. And maybe that is through Trump and maybe that's through different political parties or whatever, but that's, you know? Yeah. And that's the same in Australia. You know, like I'm using Trump because it's yeah. a hyperbole, but yeah. Well, I've heard that there's you kind of the way you grow up you're either sort of like a more of a kind of a left or a right you know that's just how the balance of life yeah. is with people and that's kind of you know it's kind of like a yin and a yang in, in a way so it's just about understanding that you know there's you need to have two different sides of, of, of things I guess yeah I think I think there are two different value propositions that are being presented about how to run society and and I think we should be working towards what has the best outcome in any given situation. And I tell you what, the reality is that nobody's 100% sure. Yeah. You know? But everybody's arguing from a position of 100% surety. And that's, yeah, yeah, difficult. What do you think about the onset of um, things like, I call it the dilution of of knowledge by um, things like YouTube, where it's, it's uh, you learn everything through YouTube. Um, you click through to different things that have become more and more sensational as you sort of go along, and you can find yourself down a pretty crazy sort of path. But that seems to be the way that a lot of people are kind of turning to, rather than you know, it's not rather than turning to books. Yeah, I, look, I'm, I think it's good and bad. I think the internet has democratized 
education in a really fantastic way. And so you can see it, we'll talk, we can, we'll talk about it in two different ways. We'll talk about it in terms of the maker movement and we can talk about it in terms of politics. Yes, I think in terms of politics, it allows you to surround yourself and it allows you to go into echo chambers of where you don't have to be confronted with people who, who disagree with you. Um, and I don't think that that's healthy. What I love, what I think is really healthy, uh, is that I learned how to make knives because people were sharing that knowledge on the internet in a free and lovely way. I think that's incredibly fantastic and you can learn things from that in a way that you've never learned from, from books before. And, it, and it, you know, I've got a whole bunch of knife making books that I've learned a lot from YouTube and I've learned these are just different mechanisms for education. I think that in terms of making movement, in terms of learning how to use tools, has been one of the big success stories of the internet in terms of diffusion of education. Uh, and I'm wholeheartedly in support of that. Um, yeah, I... I, I do worry at times though, we run, we run classes in how to make knives and we have a lot of people who turn up who have only ever watched the videos, who think that they're experts from those videos alone and they're disappointed because their hands are stupid, you know, they're, and it's that you just need to stand in front of machines and work with machines for long enough until you've got muscle memory. And that's where I think this education needs that follow-up yeah. as well. Yeah. Watching a video about skydiving is not skydiving. Yeah. And doesn't make you a skydiver. Right. It makes you somebody who's watched a video about skydiving. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same with knife making. And I love it that people are, are more interested in knife making and I want to see more people. And I want to see more people... Uh, I, want to, I would love to see more females getting into it. I would love, you know, I want it to be a, a, a broader church that is, that is knife making. At the moment, it's still very much uh, a certain part of society that's getting really into knife making, and I would love to see that broader. But, but it needs to be followed up with action. It needs to be followed up with actually making those things. Because I tell you what, like, people make these things look easy. I deboned a, a lamb, a lamb bone recently. I bought a whole lamb, lamb leg, um, and I and the, the recipe was like buy a deboned lamb leg. But mine came with the bone in, and I watched this video of a guy take out a lamb bone in 30 seconds, and then it took me about five minutes. And guy was messy, and it wasn't. And it, it was rewarding, but it also made me really respect that process of what butchers do right, and the skill of which they do it. Because he did it in 30 seconds and there was no meat on his bone. Well, I took out basically half the lamb to get my deboned lamb leg. And I think that's that comparison. That you can These guys make it look easier. You know, these people that make it look easier on the internet. But you have to actually do that thing for it to be real. Yeah. Awesome. Let's move on to something fun to finish off. What would you tell your teenage self if you could go back in time? Um, it's a tough one. Yeah, I think... I think when I was younger, it's that anger and passion are not the same thing. I, I, I think 
I think I conflated those two things as a younger person. Uh, and then also just to kind of... To, to always pursue what makes... To pursue creative endeavours. And I've always done that, but I could have done it more. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a tough one. I don't know. I, yeah. Take less drugs. <laughs> like, I didn't waste too many drugs as a teenager. So, like, but at the same time, that, drugs were a great way of dealing with being a teenager. Yeah, so it certainly opens, yeah. opens up gateways. Yeah. Um, okay, your, your favourite piece of art, whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, I, yeah, I... Look, favorite favorite artist is Monet. Like hands down, I went to lingerie in Paris and just sat in the room, the water lilies room, yeah. and just let that wash over me. Uh, I think his stuff is really, really powerful. Uh, I'm not a big fan of owning a poster of his, and so sadly, I'll never own a Monet in my house. Um, at the moment, my favourite artist at the moment is, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, she's a, a French-Canadian artist called Sandra Just, I'll, I can, if, if there's links at the bottom of this, yeah, I'll send you the link to that. Yeah. Um, and she does beautiful kind of women with masks made out of comic books as oil paintings. And they're just, they're raw and, and, and they're about the masks that all of us wear in society and I just I find the depth of what she's trying to say in her art pieces yeah. incredible um, yeah and if I, if I could own one of my, her art pieces I would I keep on she keeps on releasing her prints at like 1am or 2am in Australian time yeah. and I'm like I just can't be bothered waking up at that time and they always sell out in 30 minutes yeah. and so you're like like I like her but I don't like her 2am like her <laughs> Do check on check on our Instagram social media. We'll, we'll have all those links up. Um, you're a bit of a foodie. Tell us your uh, favourite place to eat. And pick a pick one. Uh, so I've got my I've got my my cheat my medium and my and my and my lux. Um, so. Right, you can do three. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 you, you ask a foodie, you're, yeah, you're yeah, going to get a complicated one. Yeah. Um, so my cheap is, uh, is Shawcross Pizza. On, on, it's, it's New York style pizza. You live in New York, you get addicted to New York pizza. Uh, I could talk about that all day. Yeah. Um, my, my medium is, is Umberto's on uh, High Street. Really good pasta that's just as close to Italy as you're gonna get. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and then my Lux is uh, is Restaurant Lumet in South Melbourne. Uh, Sean Quaid, in my mind, is a genius. I'm I'm literally blown away. I, I I went there. I had dinner with my partner. We then worked together and made steak knives together. And I feel incredibly blessed that I even got to work with him because I just respect his process. Um, it's not for everybody. It's experimental. And experimental food can take you two different places. It can take you on a journey where it's like a theatre piece. Or like experimental theatre. 
you can be 100% aware that you're sitting in and watching a play in front of you and you feel very disconnected from it. I connect with it, it's not going to connect with everybody, but I think he's a genius. I'm really excited to see where he goes. Yeah. Beautiful. Last, finish it off with, one I like to ask, um, I know you're a bit of a podcast fan yourself. Um, what, what, are your, what are you listening to at the moment? What, are, what do you think about podcasts? Uh, I think... Oh, look, I'm loving podcasts. Um, unfortunately, my drive is so short that I don't actually get to listen through the majority of my podcast on the drive. And so often I'm sitting in my car either at the start or the end for about five minutes just to get to a nice point at which to end. Um, I love it in the same way that I love books, that you can, no matter what you're interested in, you can find that niche that works for you. Uh, I think there's more scope to, for, for podcasts about makers to have a bit more depth than what they're having at the moment and a, and a, and a bit more kind of professionality to them. Uh, and I would love, I'm really excited. Somebody will do that soon. And when they do that, they're going to be very, very successful. Um, you know, you essentially, you know, if somebody can do the hot ones of makers, hot ones is so brilliant and it's such a simple idea. But it, if somebody can do the hot ones of makers, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to rule the internet for a while. Um, Just writing that one down. <laughs> uh, outside of that, I'm listening to Rough Translation. I'm listening to Slow Burn. And I, and I always, my, my go-to is No Such Thing as a Fish. Those are my kind of three podcasts that I'll, that I'll be hammering every day. Yep. Uh, and obviously this one, which I've just kind of been introduced to, which is great. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Uh, great way to finish it off. Aidan McKinnon, thank you so much for joining me, mate. Thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure. Easy. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing success at Cutthroat. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, mate. That was our chat with Aidan McKinnon of Cutthroat Knives at 8th Nerve in Coburg. Check out our Instagram at Two Coffees and a Creative for all the photos and links from this week's episode. And if you're enjoying this podcast, you can find more episodes of Two Coffees on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Matt David and this has been Two Coffees and a Creative. Two Coffees and a Creative.